Today's episode of the Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Thermo Fisher Scientific, offering innovative Gibco solutions to support your stem cell research workflow. Welcome, everybody, to episode 58, Heart Disease Modeling. I am Dr. Christopher Pisano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's going on, Yos? Happy Thanksgiving week, man. What's good? Yeah, looking forward to Thanksgiving. It's It, it got really cold over here, too, so uh, sort of like a slap in the face that winter is actually about to be starting, but I'm excited for this little break, uh, see some family, and uh, get a little time off from lab. So uh, how's everything with you? Everything is going well. Um, yeah, we've got a short week, which is great. I went to Newport, Rhode Island this weekend, by the way. Yeah. It's really beautiful up there. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a um, just a random trip. Uh, eight of my, I saw those mansions, you know, those old Gilded Age, like Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, disgusting, gaudy mansions, <laughs> man. They're like 125,000 square feet. Wow. Well, yeah, I've actually been up there. I've, I've I went boogie boarding back in the day in Newport, Rhode Island. So, uh, yeah, it's cool, cool place. Um, it's it was a very cool place. But anyway, yeah, again, we'll have a short week here. Happy Thanksgiving to to all of our listeners out there. By the time this airs, it'll be a few days before Thanksgiving. I know Yosef and I are both really thankful for this podcast and that for everyone that listens because without you guys, we we wouldn't have the show. So, uh, we appreciate the support, and it, I guess it's a good time for us to to thank everybody. For tuning in we were just saying 58 episodes yeah we should uh, also thank there thank some of our guests for coming on all of them uh, all of our guests all the scientists i mean we don't pay them they they want to talk about their work and they volunteer their time to uh share uh their findings with us and uh it's sort of a form of uh outreach to the to the to the people, so uh, we'd yep. like to thank them as well. Thank so. you, everyone and out our there. I'm, I'm actually live on Periscope right now, previewing this. So, hi everybody who's out there. If you're on Periscope right now, give me a couple hearts. Let me know you're watching. And then, um, let's see. So, today's episode we said is heart disease modeling. We have Dr. Uh, and Professor Lior Gepstein from Israel, who's going to come on and tell us how they're using stem cells to not only create a, a disease model for heart disease, but also use these really cool fluorescent reporters in a way to kind of track how these heart cells are, are beating and how they respond to different drugs and things like this. Very interesting. It's a very clear interview, I think, right? He did a really good job of explaining everything, so I think everyone should be able to understand this. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that. We are the Stem Cell Podcast, the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research. You can check them out at ISSCR. Dot org. You get all their info on their programs, plus they got the housing is open for their 2016 big meeting in San Fran, and they also have these spinoff meetings you can register for. Uh, we are presented by Thermo Fisher. Thermo is doing their 24-hour stem cells coming up, I think, in December. Next week, I'll get the date while I'm, while I'm, while I'm talking here. But um, we're going to do actually a recap of that because it's very cool. We'll probably do it on the next episode, uh, maybe instead of the roundup. Um, and it's basically a literally 24 hours of stem cell event where they have talks for 24 hours. Um, it's really, really cool. And, uh, we did it. Yosef and I actually gave talks last year on it. Um, and it'll be, it'll be really fun. So you should all go to uh, our website, stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner and you can register for, for free there. Um, let's see. We launched stem cell chat. So stemcellchat.com is the first forum. I'm going to sign off on Periscope now. Bye, everybody. I'll talk to you later, and we'll see you, and you can hear the rest of it when we come out tomorrow. So um, stemcellchat.com is the first forum facilitating really knowledge sharing among stem cell scientists. It's also not just for scientists. You can go on there and read about the papers we talk about. You can contribute to the discussion. There's, there's a part for stem cells in the news, stem cell therapies. 
Um, there's some good discussions going on, but we really need everybody to sign up. Without people, it's no forum. So it's free. It doesn't hurt. It's easy to sign up. Go to stemcellchat.com, sign up, and contribute to the discussion today. And it really, really will be a great resource. I already, Mark Tomashima signed on. And so he's, he's been helping contribute to some technical things. We've been talking about when to use MEFs, how to use them, and different things. And it's, it's actually, it'll be a really useful uh, uh, resource. So please, everybody, it. go out and do it. I love it when you say when to use MEFs. <laughs> That's mouse embryonic fibroblasts, not meth yeah. or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. I always do that. Uh, that's great. So, That's really uh, funny. Um, so wait, just so because stem cell, it starts, stem cell, 24 hour stem cells, December 3rd. All right, so put that on your calendar. Um, so everybody go sign up for stemcellchat.com. You can go to stemcellpodcast.com, sign up for the newsletter. Uh, I think these are the main uh, the main focus points. We're going to be in Atlanta uh, in a couple weeks, right? December Hot Atlanta. 8th. Yep. Hot Atlanta. Yos and yep. I, Anthony, will be in Hot Atlanta to, for the World Stem Cell Summit, which is a big event. Um, we're going to be there. We're going to be broadcasting from the floor, pulling people aside. We also have this new mobile mic that we can just walk up to people randomly and just start interviewing them as we're walking so no one is no one is no one can hide from the podcast <laughs> yeah we'll see you in the bathroom <laughs> we're gonna yeah we're gonna find you the bathroom someone's gonna step up to the urinal i'm gonna be like so what did you think about this paper and they're like what the hell's going on here um so uh we're looking forward to that and we always look forward to going and take the show on the road literally it's uh, it's a good time so Let's go into the um, into the science roundup portion of the show. Hashtag Sci Roundup. You can follow it on Twitter. We uh, always put out our papers on Twitter, and you can follow the papers also in StemCellChat.com to continue the discussion. Yos, my man, will kick off the roundup for episode fifty-eight. Yeah, so uh, there was a Lancet article where they found that colistin, this uh, it's a resistant bacteria, so colistin's an antibiotic, and they found a colistin-resistant bacteria on a Chinese pig farm. So why is this important? So colistin is actually the last line of defense in antibiotics, and uh, the resistant mutation for this bacteria is the MRC1 gene, and it was found in one of five animals on this farm, this bacteria. And so uh, the colistin is mainly used in animals, because it could be toxic to kidneys. But uh, the, if the bacteria becomes global and aligns itself with other antibiotic-resistant genes, we could be in the post-antibiotic era. So that's why this is important. And right now it's confined to China, but they're urging uh, lowered use of antibiotics so that uh, this thing doesn't get out of control. So you can find that in The Lancet. Dude, those, those bacteria really freaked me out. When my mother-in-law was in the hospital, when I learned about it, there's a lot more anti antibiotic-resistant bacteria than I ever imagined, and those yeah. things freak me out, man. Especially MRSA, uh, the staph yep, one. exactly. Methyl, yeah, so uh, moving on, there was an International Journal of Epidemiology describing a new STD, uh, sexually transmitted disease, that is more common than gonorrhea. It's called mycoplasma. Uh, bad word amongst us stem cell scientists. My you guys can see my face right now. I, just I know. Not mycoplasma genitalium, and it infects more than 1% of people between the ages of 16 and 44 in the United Kingdom and is more common in people who have had more uh, sexual partners without a condom in the past year and, is, more importantly, is not found in virgins. So it, it appears to be a sexually transmitted disease and can cause burning in the urethra when urinating in men and in women has been linked to inflammation in the cervix, and there's no approved test uh, by the FDA in this country for it, and uh, the treatment is five days of antibiotics, so hopefully we'll get a handle on this in terms of the testing and how to prevent it, but uh, obviously condoms is a good place to start. So, uh, Yeah, did you see also the STD rates have gone up again alarmingly, uh, and in particular, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, dude. Ooh, making a comeback. Like syphilis was... uh, the fifteen point one percent increased. When I think of syphilis, I think of like King Louis the Second. You know, I don't think of like you know some guy across the street. But they're saying it's on the rise, and in particular in, in in homosexual men is where these are these are really starting to pick up. So everybody, be safe out there. Yeah, be Please. safe. I, um, yeah, the end of Al Capone's life was, I think, a syphilis-ridden uh, hellhole. But yeah, any- yeah, yeah, no good. <laughs> um, so uh, there was a science article. This one's really cool. Uh, so they they found in a nine-year study of 986 Bolivian women that uh, indigenous Bolivian women that had a parasitic roundworm called Ascaris lumbricoides. Uh, so this roundworm infection led to an average of two extra children in women who had it. And 
then uh, while the uh, roundworm, this roundworm increased fertility, they found that hookworms led to three fewer less children across a lifetime. So uh, they think that the immune system changed uh, to not reject the fetus under the roundworm conditions, whereas the slower-growing hookworm probably suppressed the immune system and or caused anemia in people who had this infection. So it's, I mean, it wound up in science because uh, the exact mechanism of this, you know, birth control versus birth enhancing, uh, you know, using roundworms versus hookworms. That's why it's in science, and it's uh, pretty cool. Uh, Dude, I so, saw that. That's wild. It's so wild. Yeah. There's a journal of uh, pediatric study where they uh, developed a, this sort of a play off the marshmallow test. I don't know if you've heard about this uh, test in the past where I they have. put a marshmallow in front of kids and the ones who were... I wanna, to, I'm going to do it to my son. I just <laughs> haven't gotten around to it. I really, really want to do it. Well, you may want to try this one. So they developed a raisin test uh, to forecast a child's attention and learning capacity. Dude, and, he loves raisins. Go okay, perfect. This? So they took uh, 20-month-old toddlers. I think uh, Luca's around that age, right? No, he's older than that, but We'll okay. see. Let's see. So they took 20-month-old toddlers, uh, and they have a raisin in an opaque cup and within arm's length, and they told uh, the, the kids to wait 60 seconds before they could touch and eat the raisin. So they found that premature babies uh, were more likely to take the raisin uh, before the allotted time. And in a follow-up study, seven years later, they found that the early raisin eaters, the kids who couldn't control themselves, uh, performed less well than their waiting peers. So again, sort of the marshmallow test uh, rehashed into a raisin test. Uh, so. Was there anything like if you do, if you wait, you'll get something more, or is it just you gotta wait? I'm not sure actually, but uh, I, as far as I understand, it's the latter. So uh, okay, all right. Because uh, the marshmallow one was you'll get three more marshmallows if you yeah, don't eat it now. Yeah. Yeah, you know? and so I it's think more reasoning maybe. I think that was done with the older kids as well. It I was. think they were like it was because I think there was a reasoning component. Here, it's more just like patience. You know, yes, like yes. don't go nuts. Uh, there is an uh, announcement this week that uh, the first clinical trials of a uterus transplantation will be occurring in the United States. Uh, and this groundbreaking study will include 10 women with the uterine factor infertility, which affects uh, 1 in 4,500 women. So these women are effectively born without a uterus. And for these women, traditional pe pregnancy is impossible. So uh, the first two international attempts at uterus transplantation failed largely because of organ rejection during pregnancy, but a Swedish research team accomplished this in two, uh, September of 2014, and it was performed in nine uterus uh, transplants, and they result in five pregnancies and four live births. So women born without a uh, uterus have been able to give uh, birth. And so they're going to do this in the U.S. And listen to this process, man. Uh, clinicians first do the in vitro fertilization, and then they store uh, the eggs. They freeze them. And after t 10 embryos have been frozen um, in a life bank, uh, the uterus donor has to be found for the person. And then the next akin signs uh, an informed in uh, consent. And then they do the uterus transplantation uh, into a patient's pelvis within six to eight hours of harvesting the uterus from the donor. Um, wow. And then uh, after 12 months, they're allowed to heal. And then uh, the women's frozen embryos are thawed and implanted. And then uh, the, the woman takes anti-rejection uh you know, drugs to, uh, during her pregnancy and they do a biopsy of the cervix and then they deliver the baby via cesarean section. And after that, uh, the woman has one to two babies, uh, that she undergoes a hysterectomy and stops taking the anti immune rejection drugs. Wow. So, uh, it's a long process, but, uh, apparently the Swedish group is collaborating with them to help them do this in the U S and hopefully it'll be successful. So, uh, I thought that was a big announcement that I should highlight. Uh, there is a journal of endocrinology and metabolism study showing that Viagra increases uh, insulin sensitivity in individuals with prediabetes. And also they use uh, biological markers of kidney and heart disease like creatine and albumin, respectively, to show this. And they think uh, Vi this Viagra does inhibit a natural blood vessel relaxing chemical called, you know, cyclic AMP. So, uh, so sorry, cyclic GMP. Uh, this big difference. Uh, so 
who knows what's going on there. But uh, apparently, you know, if you're insulin resistant, uh, you can take some Viagra to increase that sensitivity. Uh, real quick, there was a cell paper that looked at gold, a golden retriever named Rango that has dystrophin loss. So uh, this is relevant to Duchenne muscular dystrophy. But he and one of his fe- his male offsprings have a variant in the jagged gene. You know, jagged one, the notch yep. receptor ligand. Uh, so do you say ligand or ligand? I, I say mostly ligand. Okay, so uh, the notch receptor ligand uh, jagged one. Uh, so this gene allows most of the dogs who have this uh, mutation, they can't run, but th- this dog is able to walk and run free- freely, uh, seemingly unaffected by the gene. And so instead of uh, being disabled at two years, he's 11 years old and he's fine. And so they did a, gene- a G- genome-wide association screen and found that jagged one was twice the levels of uh, the affected dogs. So they uh, checked it in zebrafish and found that overexpressing jagged counteracts the dystrophin defect. So this could be a new treatment for uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And you can find that in cell. And uh, real quick, I got one minute left. So uh, JAMA Neurology uh, showing that uh, that older adults who had a worse uh, smell test scores were 2.2 more likely 2.2 times more likely to uh, begin having mild memory problems so this could be a pre alzheimer's uh, test i know that the, we talked about hyposmia with uh, parkinson's patients and uh, real quick i want to highlight this uh, because i have 30 seconds uh, nature communications article where they used molly molybdenum it's a uh, molecule uh, uh, disulfide in lieu of carbon based graphene nanopores so this this uh, nanopore is able to yield seventy percent more pure water from salty water so uh, typically with us uh, you know uh, purifying uh, fresh water from salt water uses reverse osmosis so this uh, nanopore attracts water molecules while the sulfur pushes uh, it away and it, this makes it uh, use way less energy than reverse osmosis so uh desalination may become actually more cheaper and more efficient uh using this method so you can find that nat- nature communications and i'll end it on that note cool reverse osmosis always like the, i don't even know what it really is it but just it just sounds, sounds cool, cool. <laughs> yeah i agree right like yeah you love process of reverse osmosis all right so let's now uh we'll get into the more stem cell focus i round up here um a couple things um on the news front Yes, you probably saw this, but um, Okada, uh, the company, uh, the Okada Therapeutics traded on the NASDAQ was bought out by Estella's Pharmaceuticals for $379 million for their eye disease program. Now, I'll get into the quick details here. So the Japanese drug firm Estella's Pharma announced late Monday agreed to buy Okada which is developing regenerative medicines for eye disease. It's a cash deal worth $380 mil. All right, now, Okada... It was formerly known as Advanced Cell Technologies, ACT. We know that uh, Bob Lanz is there. And it was in Mass- the Massachusetts-based company. It was really a stem cell pioneer because really they were one of the first ones to develop embryonic stem cells for human therapies. Uh, and this was early back in the day in 2001, like 2004 really, really early when Bush, President Bush, basically curtailed the industry by limiting federal funding and all this stuff. So uh, ACT went this this different route, backing its way onto the public markets through this reverse merger in 2005, then they narrowed their focus to eye disease. And, to, and then in 2011, they finally administered its stem cell treatment to patients for the first time. Um, and their Okada treatment for uh, Stargot disease is in phase two. And it began a trial for age-related MACD-Gen in the third quarter. So uh, uh, Ostellus will be taking that over. The deal is not officially done, but uh, you know it needs approval of shareholders. But it looks like it'll get done. Hey, I it's- made like fifty percent profit off of my little investment in Okada uh, bang, off of that buy. Yeah, so uh, I'm, boom, I'm boom. familiar with this. So story. everybody wins. Patience and Yosef. Um, <laughs> let's see here. So we got um, I, Yosef. I saw this article and I thought of you immediately, and so I pulled it to read. The, it's an opinion piece by Guy Gugliotta. Love the name. Hey, yo, Guy Gugliotta. How you doing? Um, it's called Thanks George W. for the boost to stem cell research. Wow. For the longest time, Eos has been saying that everyone's been hating on Bush for, for destroying the stem cell industry. But Yos was always saying if it wasn't for Bush, we wouldn't have everything we have. Um, have I? <laughs> 
Yeah, you used to tell him that to me. We I remember remember in uh, in I, Lorenz's lab, we used to talk about that. He makes us more like, valuable as by limiting yeah, the market. Yeah, when you whenever you tell people they can't do something, people hustle. Yeah, and uh, and so this article is saying that George Bush. He said, sorry, it wasn't what George Bush had in mind. In 2001, he restricted the use of federal funding for embryonic stem cell research, giving conservatives what looked like a major victory. Three years later, California thumbed its nose, mm-hmm. and it started a multi-billion dollar stem cell program called CIRM. Yep. Uh, okay. And then New York State got NYSTEM, and Connecticut got yes. the, their Connecticut program, and then on, so on into uh, University of Minnesota, $50 million stem cell research program. So what what that did was create these huge statewide initiatives, and because of that, we're in a better place. That's a good point. Um, yeah, yeah. And so so um, this is just it's a real it's a funny article, and it puts a lot of facts. Talks a lot about CERM. Now I will say this: we were contacted by uh, CERM's PR, and they want us to have the CEO of CERM uh, to come on and talk about CERM, the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, and what they have done with all that money and what they're going to do. I think that's going to be a great is interview. That we're Arnold gonna... Krigstein or no, 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 no. Um, oh man, I forgot the new gentleman's name, but well, I could find it. It's uh, Randy Mills, Doctor oh, Randy okay. Mills. Nice. So he's going to come on. We hope we're going to set that up for you guys and get him on. He's going to tell about what they have done with that money and so forth. So interesting article. When you try to put something down in our country, it tends to bounce back a lot, a lot yeah. stronger. So yeah. that was a funny article. I thought of Yosef and yeah. uh, it's relevant. Um, so we have now, of course, my 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 thing is just frozen. Um, there is a uh, I, I saw this here. Uh, Bart Starr is a very famous uh, uh, ex football player, NFL player, and looks like he is going. Um, he went and underwent his, his second experimental stem cell treatment in Mexico. So he had some strokes and he received one, and now he's going back for his second. Uh, uh, stem cell treatment in Tijuana. I always cringe when I hear people going to Tijuana to do yeah, anything. Yeah. Um, no, no offense to Tijuana, but I've been there, and it's uh, not a place I'd want to go for a medical uh, transplant. Um, and he's saying that it's helping. Uh, he he he's really really limited now with stroke, and he wants to be able to to you know be more functional. So this is the route he's taken, and, and uh, it's just another one of these famous um, uh, people. That have going on, going out there and and trying to get these 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 treatments done. Uh, you know, I can't tell them not to. I, I know what I would do. Uh, just make sure you guys really take care of yourself and look into things before you start going to Tijuana for stuff. Um, all right, this was uh, interesting. Um, uh, it says urine urine derived stem cells predict a patient response to cholesterol lowering drugs. Now, at first, when I saw that, I was thinking to myself. Um, you know, I didn't know that there were stem cells in urine, right? Yeah. But it looks like, yo, know, they're making they're making uh, IPS cells from oh, the urine. I see. I see. Uh, so what they do is, um, it's so you know that some individuals with common inheriting condition predispose them to high cholesterol, uh, and there's a suggest that there's this inhibitor of this liver enzyme involved in regulating uh, cholesterol levels could provide an effective alternative to or uh, or to statin therapy in these high risk patients. So what they're doing is creating IPS cells uh, from from urine. So it's more convenient source because normally you make IPS cells from blood or you make them from skin. Here you just pee, you take some cells, you reprogram the IPS, and, and then they demonstrate that pathological features of this inherited hypocholesterolemia disease uh, can be reproduced in the dish. Hmm. So they're going to be using this as uh, as a way. Uh, one of these, my internet's being really funny here, and it's, it's being slow. So one of my articles didn't come up, but um, it was. Ba- I will put the link up. It was basically parents hope harvesting stem cells from baby teeth will save lives. So this is a new thing, Yos, where like parents now, when babies are born, they're harvesting, or like when you, their teeth, they harvest it. They, they basically you can bank the teeth. Hmm. You can basically, you know, how they used to bank cord blood. Now yeah. it's banking this. So there's this, this banking business is, is you know they can save the stem cells from teeth. Hmm. Um, this was a report. Stem cells Inc. out west in Palo Alto says that their spinal injury therapy is showing some promise. So um, they have this mid-stage study showed for six patients experienced improvement on two different scales. Basically, they have a neural stem cell that they put into the spinal cord for these spinal, uh, uh, you know, spinal cord injured patients. This is Asterius Biotherapeutics showed late in August that its lead stem cell therapy can improve mobility in paralyzed patients. And stem cells research centers around the treatment for spinal cord injuries um, um, basically have what they hope is that they're 
you know, they're going to continue to show show benefit. Um, they said that there were no serious adverse events to report, and they were really excited about the progress. So hopefully that will continue to be a, a good benefit for patients with spinal cord injury. I know that's a really yearning, like everything, but, you know, yeah. people, stem cells, I think, has been synonymous with spinal cord injury for a long time. Yeah. Um, this is a, a primary paper out of the lab of Lorenz Studer. This is functional connectivity under optogenetic control allows modeling of human neuromuscular disease. This is Julius Steinbeck. Uh, uh, we know Julius. Congrats, guys. Um, and basically, they use optogenetics, which is basically a way you can uh, you can put um, basically light um, into a cell and stimulate it, and you can watch the response uh, by watching the light flash. I don't know if I kind of lay explain that correct, Yos. Yeah, no, you basically use light to turn on human neurons. So uh, he was able to do that with uh, an IPS line, I believe, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, it's a cool story, very important, and he was able to model myasthenia gravis. Yeah, myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune disorder that basically affects your neuromuscular junction to the interface of the neuron and the muscle. You need the neuron to interact with the muscle to contract. And so here they were able to basically recapitulate key aspects of the disease, uh, and, and its symptomatic treatment suggests that neuromuscular junction, this assay, this test has significant potential for modeling. So if we can model the disease and monitor it using these colors, uh, we might be able to find a better... Uh, a better kind of uh, therapy. So that 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 technology continues to advance our way. We do disease modeling, and we're going to talk to uh, Lior today about how he uses uh, basically fluorescent reporters in some way to do this in the heart. That paper uh, is uh, one of those papers where you just have to see the videos online. I know uh, that's the cool. S- the stimulation of uh, sort of the neuromuscular junction in a dish. Uh, so it, it it looks way better on video than it does on paper. Um, the next paper is out of um, Scientific Reports, Zhu Jun Li's lab. Uh, I think and Sandy Angle's on here. I know Sandy. She's at Pfizer. And uh, it's basically uh, the specification and maturation of nociceptive neurons from human embryonic stem cells. So nociceptors are, are the neurons that basically sense pain. So when you burn your finger, you step on a nail, that feeling of pain is transmitted by nociceptors. And so, obviously, they're important neurons to study because people live with uh, incredible neuropathic pain and, and just pain like allodynia, which is basically things that are not considered painful, that are painful like wind. When you go outside and the wind blows, some people experience excruciating pain from that. Can you just imagine that? Mm. So um, this group has a way now and a new recipe that they can guide human embryonic stem cells to these nociceptors and then uh, mature them appropriately. So that should be useful. And then let's see, the last one I have, well, the last one I have is is really just the paper that we're going to be discussing next with, with our guest, and that's from Stem Cell Reports, Monitoring Human-Induced Pluripotent Stem Cell-Derived Cardiomyocytes, which are, you know, the cells in the heart, with genetically encoded calcium and voltage fluorescent reporters. Uh, I will not talk about it right now, but so let's move uh, at that point um, into um, the uh, interview portion of the show. Before I go there... For everybody out there who wants to learn more about these papers and discuss them more, you can go to stemcellchat.com and continue the discussion. Uh, we will put these papers up in the discussion under the science roundup piece. You'll see it. You can go in there and just start, you know, ask your questions or contribute to the discussion. That way we don't just have to stop when the science roundup uh, is over. So we're going to move now into the uh, interview segment of the Stem Cell Podcast, uh, which is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. And uh, Stem Cell Technologies sent us a note. They want to let everybody know that they, that they have a new uh, differentiation uh, kind of kit. It's called Stem Diff Pancreatic Progenitor Kit. And what that does is it will efficient, efficiently differentiate pluripotent cells, human ES and IPS, to pancreatic progenitor cells. And then basically these are these differentiated cells, differentiated cells excuse me, can be matured into insulin-producing cells, which we know where that goes for diabetes. Wow. So they so, got the MIMS um, media, the neuronal media, and now they got the pancreatic cell Yeah, media, so it's so. just an easy way. You just throw it on, and your cells will differentiate. You don't have to worry about the recipe. If you want to learn more about it, you can go to stemcell.com slash pancreatic kit, or you can go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner right there. Okay, Yosef, so today on our episode, we are going to talk um, stem cells, 
and uh, you know cardiovascular and the cardiovascular field with um, Dr. Lear Gepstein. So let me just uh, give a brief introduction. So uh, Professor Gepstein received his MD and PhD from the Rappaport Faculty of Medicine, Technion Israel Institute of Technology in Haifa. He currently holds the position of Professor of Physiology and Medicine, Cardiology at the Technion Fac- <coughs> excuse me Technion's Faculty of Medicine and heads the Sonis Family Research Lab for Cardiac Electrophysiology and Regenerative Medicine. His research in their lab uh, focuses on the potential use of pluripotent stem cells, which we talk about a lot on the show, for myocardial regeneration and for the you know treatment of postmyocardial infarction, or we know that as a heart attack, uh, and on ut- utilizing genetically engineered cell grafts to modify the myocardial properties for the treatment of arrhythmias and things like this. Something that's very intriguing to me and I'm sure to everyone else. Uh, We'll get into his latest paper that was in Stem Cell Reports. So let us welcome uh, Dr. Lear Gepstein to the Stem Cell Podcast. Welcome aboard. Thank you very much. Okay, so we always ask our guests to start with a brief introduction, uh, you know, of, of you, you know, your career, you know, what your, what your research has been, where, what, it, what you're doing now in the lab and, and its implications, and then we'll kind of bring you up to present and get into the, uh, to the latest paper. Okay, sure. So um, I've been trained as a cardiologist, <clears throat> and my previous work, my PhD work, and my work after my PhD actually did not have to do anything with stem cells. I'm a cardiac electrophysiologist, and my PhD work focused on development of a system for uh, mapping and treating cardiac arrhythmias, abnormal rhythm disorders. And I was very happy to involve in my PhD in the development of a system, which is currently the -the state-of-the-art method for treating patients with cardiac arrhythmia by generating ablations, by ablating the focus of this arrhythmia. So it's completely out of the scope of the stem cell field. This was my PhD and my uh, professional career. And then um, when I was establishing my own lab um, several years after that, I had a um, conversation with the head of our OBG department and our hospital, um, Professor Joseph Itzkovich, who is one of the pluripotent stem cell pioneer, who together with Jamie Thompson in uh, 1999, established the first um, human embryonic stem cell lines. And at that time, it wasn't published yet, and he was telling me about this important work, and he said, and he asked me, can you do anything with that? So I says, wow, this is exactly what we need in the cardiology field. We don't have any source for human heart cells. And there are patients that potentially could use that um, to repair their hearts. So that's how I got to the stem cell field completely by chance. I had a lab which was very physiology-oriented. Um, so we started learning from scratch. Um, and since then, since the year 2000, we've been involved in, in this field ever since. So I'm curious, actually. So before, I, I think it's important to give some historical, uh, you know, context. How did people study heart cells in a, a I guess, in the dish? Uh, were they taking it from animals, actual heart tissue or embryonic heart tissue from, uh, I guess, developing fetuses from animals? Or how, how were they studied before stem cells came about? So um, the problem is there's no real good way to study adult heart cells. So you can't really isolate heart cells from an adult animal or adult patient and study it for a long period. So that's why most of the models um, cons- consisted of studying either neonatal heart cells, mainly from rats and mice, hmm. or fetal, as you say. But there was no good way to study human heart cells in a dish perhaps only for a few uh, minutes to hours, but there was not really a lot of studies on human heart cells. Wow. So, so just, I would just want to also clarify something for the audience. Um, you said you're an electrophysiologist for everybody out there. It's really studying the kind of the electrical uh, properties of cells, right? I mean, if you want to keep it very basic. So can you just talk a little bit about that, Lior, about, about the electrical component to the heart? We all know that it has to pace and beat and, and do all that, and that is electrically, um, uh, what keeps that pace is an electric current, if you will. Can you explain a little bit of that to the audience before we get into, uh, you know, the research? Sure. Um, so the heart is part of a 
tissues that are excitable tissues, that meaning that they can generate electrical activity. And the way the heart works is that there are a few cells that are called pacemaker cells that generate the electrical impulse every second. So that's why we, the heart rate beats 60 beats per minute. Um, and then the electrical activity spreads from this initial pacemaker area to the rest of the heart cells. Every heart cell which is activated electrically then contract. And because this spread of electrical activity is very fast and very coordinated, the heart contracts as a single unit and is very effective in ejecting the blood to the, to the arteries. Hmm. And uh, yeah, so Chris and I are both uh, neuroscience background and somewhere along the line of doing a neuroscience PhD, they make you study long QT syndrome and, uh, mm -hmm. they, you know, in the context of ion channels and uh, all this. So maybe for a little bit of background, because I know your stem cell reports paper eventually addresses this. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about long QT as well. Okay. So in general, the, the diseases in the heart are divided into acquired disease, which are the most common. This is what happens when you have a heart attack or an injury to the heart and so on. And to genetic disorders, which are more rare, um, but they do uh, consist in important uh, disease processes. Uh, one example of a genetic disorder is the long QT syndrome. It's a part of a family of genetic disorders called inherited arrhythmogenic syndromes, meaning these are diseases usually in otherwise completely healthy individuals in which because of a mutation in one of their DNA or the genes in the DNA that encode specific proteins that are associated with the electrical activity of the heart, they may develop a very life-threatening arrhythmia that may result in death. Specifically, the long QT syndrome is a problem in the electrical relaxation of the heart. So at every heartbeat, there is development of electrical activity. So each heartbeat is consists of an excitation where there is activation of the electrical activity, and then there is a relaxation of the electrical activity. In the long QT syndrome, um, there's abnormality in this electrical repolarization or relax relaxation, which results in a prolonged um, action potential. That's why in the electrocardiogram, it's manifested by a prolongation of a part which is called the QT interval. That's why it's called the QT, long QT syndrome. And this prolongation of relaxation may lead to an abnormal uh, electrophysiology situation in which arrhythmias could develop. And these arrhythmias could be lethal. Um, this, uh, this long QT syndrome could be congenital. You are born with a genetic defect. Usually it's in families, so there are other family members that have the same problem. But it could also be acquired, for example, because of drugs that, similar to genetic problem, drugs may um, block this specific channels that are responsible for the electrical relaxation and create a similar problem. So this this has to do not with the uh, cardiomyocytes, but the actual neurons innervating the heart. No, no, it's it's only the heart cells. The heart cells, similar to neurons, each heart cells creates an action potential, oh, okay. and this action potential is mediated by ion channels. There are ion channels that participate in the development of the action potential, such as sodium channels. And there are, action there are uh, ion channels that are involved in the repolarization or the relaxation of the heart beat, which are called potassium channels. Long QT syndrome usually involves a mutation in one of the potassium channels in the heart cells. So the heart cells, their electrical activity is abnormal. Instead of uh, consisting of an action potential with about 400 milliseconds, it could be 600, 700 milliseconds. So, I, I mean, I, I guess what I'm confused about is uh, cardiomyocytes, I think of as, uh, you know, muscle tissue versus the neurons that are inducing them to, to uh, flex sort of like the neuromuscular junction. So these are neurons, uh, I guess, neuronal properties within the heart 
uh, that are mediated by nerve cells uh, that are not part of the CNS, or are they part of the CNS? So in contrast to the skeletal muscle, in which the skeletal muscle cells are activated by neurons, the heart cells are completely independent of nerve cells. So you have certain heart cells that are pacemaker cells that starts the electrical activity, and then the electrical activity spreads from one heart cell to the next. The nerve cells don't play a role in this. In fact, you can completely denervate the heart and you will have normal function of the heart. Hmm. The role of the nervous system is to modulate the pacemaker function, for example. So it can make it faster or slower, but you don't need the nerves in order for the heart to react. It's not like skeletal muscle. Hmm. I see. So, okay, so let's then, now you, you have, <clears throat> excuse me, you have this system which is, is incredible that you were, you know, there. I feel like Israel has been in the pluripotent stem cell world for a long time with a lot of big big names there. I know like Benny Rubinoff has been really, really key there as well. And so you have you, you have this system now. So you have these cells that you can generate human heart cells. So so take us take us there and, and how then that evolved into your into your current work now. Okay, so as you all know, there are two types of pluripotent stem cells, embryonic stem cells, that these were the first one that were derived. And more recently, uh, based on Yamanaka work, induced pluripotent stem cells. Um, and both of them have the capacity to become any cell type in the body. So back in 2000, we were very lucky to be the first group to establish a differentiating system in which human embryonic stem cells be- can become hard cells. After the development of the IPS um, system, we also transferred these methodologies to generate heart cells from human-induced pluripotent stem cells. So now we can make human heart cells, and the question what to do with them. So like every other lab in the pluripotent stem cell field, um, there are three potential applications. One is for regenerative medicine to try to repair the damaged heart by transplanting these human heart cells back to the heart. The second application is, since we discussed that we never had the ability to study human heart cells in the dish, it provides us a unique opportunity, for example, to test drugs. So it's an important tool for drug development and drug screening. And the third application is for studying genetic disorders. The idea is that if somebody has, for example, the long QT syndrome, which is a genetic disorder, we can't take out the heart and study it, right? The person really needs his heart. (laughs) But you could theoretically take a skin cell, reprogram it to make IPS cells, and then coax the differentiation of the IPS cells to make heart cells, and the heart cells in the dish should behave exactly as the patient's own heart cells. So this is uh, a big and important way on how genetic disorders are now studied in the heart. So I'm always curious as to uh, the cocktails people use to make their cell types using pluripotent cells. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what signals do uh, stems, you know, uh, how do you get down the cardiomyocyte lineage? So uh, the, the, the really initial uh, differentiating system that we were developed uh, at the beginning, were essentially spontaneous. We just optimize a spontaneous system. But over the years, several labs um, uh, generated important information. For example, um, the Keller Lab, which we are now collaborating with and which is just recently came back from a sabbatical with, was one of the pioneers in generating um, a very staged um, differentiating system to generate heart cells. The idea is to try to imitate exactly what happens during early development. Um, so in order for the heart to form, it first these pluripotent stem cells have to go through a mesoderm stage. Then the mesoderm has to be transformed into a cardiomesoderm, then into cardiac progenitors, and then into cardiomyocytes. And each of these stages requires the, the use of specific growth factors um, to um, direct the differentiation of the cells to the next stage. Um, so by imitating what happens during early development, um, the Keller lab, um, the Palachek lab, the, um, uh, and other labs in, 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 the, in the field were able to generate method in which you can really get purified population of heart cells. 
So now we could start with a pluripotent stem cell and end up with more than 90% of our cells becoming real heart cells. So I'm just curious, what growth factors are there? Is it nodal? Saying, like what, what, what sort of... Uh, so, so what's really interesting that, you know, the basic signals for generating all the different lineages, neurons, liver, heart cells, there are very, basically very few of them. You know, four or five different growth factors families. The key is the timing, the sequence, and the dosing. So in the heart, the ones that are important are the BMP, BMP. active enol, and wind pathways. Mm. But you can go to other lineages and see that the same factors are important for other lineages. It's all about sequence, timing, and dosage. Dosage, definitely. So you can now, so you can make these heart cells and you have a, 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 you know, a manipulable system that you can now test. So let's, let's talk about, uh, your goal and what you wanted to look for. And then, you know, I guess we can do it in the context of the stem cell reports paper. Let's talk about what, what you, what the question was you wanted to, to, you know, to ask and, and the tool you wanted to create. Um, so. When this, this relates to the applications of using these um, generated heart cells for drug screening application and for um, studying genetic disorders. Um, I don't know if you know, but the most important reason why a drug is withdrawn from the market after it's been approved, it's because of um, cardiovascular side effects. Hmm. So um, you could potentially have a drug in which a drug company invested billions of dollars and since it was never tested on human heart cells before it reached the clinical trial, and if the event is really rare, you have to test, you have to, um, you can identify the problem only after treating a million people, for example. For example, we had a really, really good drug when I was an intern called um, Cisapride. And Cisapride was a real good drug against vomiting. Um, and especially for children. And I think I wrote, I don't know, hundreds of prescriptions for these drugs when I was um, an intern and a young resident. Um, but then eventually it turned out that after treating a million people, 10 people died suddenly because of an arrhythmia, very similar to the long QT syndrome. Wow. It turns out that the drug that is not even meant to treat the heart blocks a specific potassium channels creates a long QT phenotype and may result in arrhythmia and that may lead to death. Wow. So a drug which was perfect was abandoned after, you know, several billions of dollars invested and so on. So the idea is to try to now screen the effects of drugs on human heart cells already in the development stage in the dish. And we know, for example, that 50% of all compounds that are being developed have some kind of a side effect on the heart. The next important organ is the liver. So really trying to screen the effects of drugs on human heart cells in the dish will be really, really important. Mm. An important uh, property is what the drugs do to the electrical activity of the heart cells. The problem is the way we study electrical activity in heart cells could be either in a very low throughput manner, for example, using patch clamp. So you maybe do one, two, three cells a day, which of course is not useful for screening 10 or, 10 or thousands of compounds. Or you can have more high throughput methods, but they're either not very sensitive, they don't give you a lot of information, or they are toxic to the cells. So you can't really study the cells over time. <coughs> so like many other areas, we searched what's going on in the neuroscience field. So in the heart, many of the very, especially in the cardiac electrophysiology, many of the good technologies originated from neuroscience. So I constantly look what's, what's hot and good in neuroscience, and let's see if we can adapt it to the cardiovascular field. Um, so something that really developed in neuroscience field is something called genetically encoded fluorescent reporters. The idea is to take um, fusion protein, which consists of two units. One is a functional unit that senses, for example, changes in the electrical activity. 
This, for example, was taken from a vaulted sensor of an uh, organism called Tsiana uh, instantalis. It's, uh, it's some sea squid that lives in the sea, but it has a protein that can sense changes in voltage, changes in the electrical properties of the membrane of the cell. Now, what researchers have done is taken this protein and infused it with green fluorescent protein. As you know, green fluorescent protein was taken from, was discovered in jellyfish, and it's fluorescent. And this is a circular form of green fluorescent protein. And now the idea is that any change in the cell membrane potential, in the electrical activity of the cell, translates to a change in the conformation of this vaulted sensor, which then results in conformation on the ch- in the uh, changing the conformation of the circular GFP, which can then result in change in fluorescence of the cell. So now by monitoring changes in the fluorescence of the cell, you can actually monitor the changes in the electrical activity. And this is non-invasive, and you can do it in hundreds of cells simultaneously. So the idea of this paper is to develop method for high-throughput, long-term, repeated functional screening of human heart cells. Okay, so you use this arc light uh, gene, and uh, that's for the voltage uh, sensing, mm-hmm. correct? And then you also used a uh, calcium fluorescent indicator. Uh, what is it? GCAMP5G? <laughs> yeah. Is, is there a shortcut so for called, that? This is, called, this is called GCAMP, and it okay. also consists sim- very similar. A fluorescent unit, which is circular GFP, and a calcium sensor unit. Mm. So again... In this case, in case of GCAM5, changes in calcium level in the cells results in changes in fluorescence of the cells at different wavelengths. So we can now continuously monitor changes in both the action potential, the electrical properties of the cell, and the resulting changes in calcium in the cell. Both properties have really important implications for the function of the cell as well as function of drugs as well as the as abnormalities in cell function. And these are slight changes in the fluorescence, right? It's not like the cells turn off and on like a light switch. These are just slight changes in the intensity of the fluorescence? Exactly. It's about um, um, the changes in fluorescence uh, range from 10 to 30%, something like this. Um, but if you have a sensitive camera or a sensitive PMT-based imaging, you can really pick it up and you can translate it to signals that really resemble what you'll do if you record electrical activity directly. Hmm. Can I just ask, um, you have a whole bunch of cells in a dish, and uh, I don't know, and the que- I guess it's more of a question, do they, are they pacing at a different rate, and do you have to synchronize that? Because I would imagine if they were pacing at a different rate, the green would never actually change color. So if, the, if you look at the cells and don't do anything, you see that each cell, if they are not connected, if the cells are connected in the tissue, then you'll see a wave of fluorescence moving through the cells and all the cells are synchronous. This is like the heart in which the pacemaker starts the electrical activity and then the electrical activity propagates from one heart cells to its neighbor, to its next neighbor and so on. So if you create a monolayer of cells which are electrically connected, you'll see a wave of electrical activity starting from the pacemaker area and then propagating through the tissue. If you disperse the cells into isolated single cells which are not connected to the neighboring cells, then each cell will beat at its own rate. And you'll see each cell acting completely different than its neighbors. In that case, since we want to really um, have some kind of objective and equal uh, activity to all, we electrically pace by field stimulation and thereby all cells beat at the frequency that we um, decide on. Okay, so you generated uh, these uh, transgenic lines that report for both uh, calcium and voltage uh, changes. And so you were able to then do drug screens, correct, uh, to, to, to test out the effects of uh, various drugs on, uh, the, on the cells, correct? 
Exactly. So remember I told you that some of the drugs were withdrawn from the market because they created arrhythmias in patients mm. and therefore um, had to be stopped. So what we saw in this paper is that known drugs that we know that can generate these problems, we could identify this in the human heart cells. So if this study would have done in human heart cells uh, before these drugs entered clinical practice, one would have potentially known that and maybe not fo move forward to this end. Mm. Mm. And, and then you moved on past the drug screening and uh, decided to use a long QT iPS cell mm -hmm. line uh, to detect changes as well. And uh, describe your results there. So um, we decided on choosing two different iPS lines, one to test the arc light sensor, which senses changes in electrical activity, and one to test changes, abnormalities in the calcium handling properties. And for this, we chose another iPS line from another patient uh, who has a disease called CPVT. So what we noted is that the patient with the long QT syndrome, his cells, when we image them, have the same long action potential duration as we expected from the patient in his clinical status. Mm. Um, for the other uh, type of family, this is an interesting family that we are treating clinically. These are um, a family that has a recessive disorder that has abnormal calcium handling that results in malignant arrhythmias and sudden death when they do exercise or when they have emotion stress, emotional stress, when there is adrenaline. Um, and this, they are really, really, really symptomatic. So you have young kids, they play football, they can get an arrhythmia. Um, and then we implant to them uh, implanted cardiac defibrillators. These are special pacemakers that give a shock to the heart in order to save their life when they develop this um, life-threatening arrhythmia. Mm. The problem is that um, let's say they develop this arrhythmia, they get a shock, a shock is really painful. The pain causes them to release adrenaline into the blood. Mm. And the adrenaline into the blood results in additional episodes of an arrhythmia and then they get another shock. So imagine these poor boys sometimes come in with 30 shocks um, to their heart. Um, we have one kid, which is now an adolescent, he has a lot of hormone changes, so every time he sees a girl... He gets excited and gets a shock. Oh, man. Imagine his oh. quality of life. Wow. <laughs> so what we did in this family, we took um, skin cells from them, created IPS cells from them, and coaxed the differentiation into cardiomyocytes. And we showed that the cardiomyocytes have the same abnormalities that lead to arrhythmias. But now what we want to do, and this is something that we are currently studying, it's not published yet, we want to use their cells together with GCAMP, which monitors calcium handling, to screen something like 30 different potential drugs that may have a positive impact on them, as well as combinations. Hmm. And then find the ideal combination for that specific patient, and then take this combination, of all of them are approved drugs, of course, and correlate it with the clinical results. So find the best drugs and try to see in the same patient where there has a positive effect. And you can do this really easy because these patients develop this arrhythmia when you put them on a treadmill, when they run. So what we really want to do is to find the best treatment for them based on their IPS lines and then use it on the patient with hopefully, you know, really improving the quality of life. Wow. Well, this is really exciting work. And it's great to see these sort of tools be used outside of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's to see it actually used uh, for heart disease, which is one of the number one killers in the world. So uh, uh, congrats on the paper and stem cell reports. You can find that there uh, in the October uh, 13th issue. And um, we'll link to it on our uh, website as well for the notes for this episode. And uh, finally, in closing, I just wanted to ask you uh, a quick funny story to uh, of anything that's come along through the years. Uh, I can imagine as a clinician, uh, you've had quite, quite a few experiences that uh, maybe you want to share with our audience? 
so um, one funny story um, relates, I think, to some of our animal work. Okay. Uh, we talked mainly today about drug screening and genetic uh, studying genetic disorders, but we have a big program in a lab on trying to use the heart cells to regenerate the heart, okay, for the treatment of heart failure and for treatment of post-myocardial infarction. Another project that we had is to try maybe to use pacemaker cells derived from the um, embryonic stem cells as an alternative to electronic pacemakers. You know, when patient age, their conduction electrical system deteriorates, their heart rate becomes really slow, and in what we do to them is implant an electronic pacemaker. So we thought, why not, instead of putting an electronic pacemaker, maybe we could put some of these heart cells that we generate that have pacemaker capabilities and transplant them, and they will replace the abnormal conduction system. So this was a kind of a really exciting idea. So we wanted to test it in animals. The problem is, in the heart, there is one rule, the fastest pacemaker dictates. So you can't really test it in mice or rats because their heart rate is too fast. Mm. The human pacemaker beats at about 60 beats per minute, but the mouse heart beats at 600 beats per minute. Mm. So we had to go to a large animal study, and we went into pigs. So we um, took pigs, and we destroyed their electrical conduction system, so they had a really slow heart rate, mm. like the patient we implant electronic pacemakers to. And then we implanted our cells, and we were really happy because some of the pigs, um, their heart rate became fast again. So um, our stem cells actually worked as working in pacemakers. So maybe in the future we can use this as an alternative to electronic pacemakers. But some of the pigs, it was very, very funny. Um, they, uh, we give them immunosuppressive drugs to prevent the rejection of the cells. So they had to be isolated so they won't get any infection because they are really prone to infection when you give immunosuppressive agents. So you put them in the but bubble. One of the pigs, one of the pigs in which we invested a lot of efforts and time and several months, um, developed depression because he used to be with his friends. And Aww. then we isolated him, oh. and he really became depressed, and he didn't want to eat. Oh. And so that shows the dedication. One of my students, who is really dedicated to his work, every day went into his cage and for two hours spent, made company with him. So wow. I talked to him, <laughs> um, and, and then he ate. And so this was the really success story behind the, you know, the biological pacemaker. Wow. Making the pigs happy. Oh, man. Does that have to go in the methods section of the study? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, man, that's really funny. So pigs can get depressed, but they can be cheered yeah. up. They can be cheered up, and by man, we can cheer pigs up. Yeah, definitely. It was like an amazing change when he was alone versus when one of the students went in and spent oh. time with him. That is that is some dedication. That that grad student deserves an award right there. Yeah, so. really, that is. Oh man! Well, listen. Thank you so much for taking your time out today to talk to us and the audience about your work. Um, and uh, we look forward to reading more about it uh, in the, in the future. Thank you again. Okay. Thank you very much, guys. Okay. Right, have a safe care. travels today. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Okay. So there you have it. Heart. In a dish, essentially. So cool, man. That's yeah. really cool. He was great. He was a really good interview. Yeah, yeah. He's he's good at explaining the background. Like, remember long QT and uh, yeah, I know. You're science? like, what? Yeah. How like, about what? that funny story with the pig? Remember that? That was a funny. Oh story. yeah, yeah. That was a good one. So uh, we're here to rant it up. Uh, finally, I know you've been waiting for that rant, and uh, I I hit Chris up with a few of my favorite uh, rants, but we decided on something really mundane and just come. It's just meaningless but it really annoys the, the heck out of us. And that is stickers on fruit <laughs> and vegetables, I guess, but mainly fruit. And uh, I just hate this. I don't, I don't know why it bothers me like when so much, but like I'll get like fruit and I'll rip off the sticker and then I'm like, really washing that area because there's that leftover rubber glue yeah it's yeah. like a glue yeah yeah and it's just gross and i'm wondering you know it's 2015 do we really need to be putting stickers still on fruit can't we somehow just like the cashiers at the desk know that this is an apple and apples cost this yeah, much the problem but- is that apples are all like there's 10 12 15 different types of apples and they all cost differently yeah, like I wish that, that's could... the first problem. We should just standardize the price of an apple. An apple's yeah. an apple. Yeah, yeah. Like right. some apples are like Honeycrisp, like three ninety nine a pound. Other ones like a dollar ninety nine. So they need the sticker 
to delineate which type of apple. But it's like ridiculous because like it's just an apple. <laughs> like why does that why does that one cost so much more money? Is the tree like needs more water or like it's like what is it? I don't get it. Actually, one of the reasons why I chose this rant today is because a friend of mine, he's a bartender, and he posted a photo yesterday during you know for Football Sunday, and he was like why do they still put these stickers on the limes? And he was showing how like he has to cut up limes for the drinks. And you know, these stickers are just a huge problem for him. Cause he's like, right. And uh, yeah. And the lime is a good example. A lime's a lime. Yeah. <laughs> like, in, you know, the lime, you yeah. know, a lemon, there's no need to put a sticker on everyone. Like why? Yeah. Yeah. There's really no need for the sticker on a lime or a lemon. And the people say, well, you don't eat the skin on a lime. So it's really not a big deal. It's not about that. It's just one more thing to do. I have to say the stickers have gotten a little bit better. They used to be like the the papery kind, and now they're more of a plastic one. So they rip off a little better uh, than in the past. Because I remember I would have to scrape at them. I and just I hate it when stickers in general don't come off. Like I had a I had a a frame for painting painting that like had a sticker on it, and obviously I don't want a sticker on the frame for this painting. So I. I it took me like 20 minutes to get the sticker off because like it was so attached to it. I wound up like having to hit it up with hot water to get this residue off. I, I, there's got to be, I, I mean, it's 2015. Why can't we just have some easily peel off sticker that we standardize for everything? Doesn't leave that leftover glue on whatever item it is. I don't know. I don't want any glue on any of my food. That's all. Yeah. I got to worry about pesticides and all that stuff enough. I don't need to worry about toxic glue. I think of George Costanza when he killed his fiance when she licked too many envelopes. The glue was toxic. I don't <laughs> oh, want that no. happening to me. That's, that's disgusting. <laughs> I don't want that to happen to me when I eat an apple. Anyway, on that note with food, yo, have a happy Thanksgiving, man, you and your family. Yeah, you too. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. So uh, hopefully, it, yeah, and we'll see you right afterwards. Actually. Yeah, we're going to see each other in, in, in World Stem Cell Summit. Everybody, please come out and visit us. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. And uh, again, we are the Stem Cell Podcast. Presented by Thermo Fisher, and we will be back for 59. Yo, it's my man. Peace out, bro. Take care.